Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Neil preached about the, the uh, parable of the miners or the parable of the talents. Basically, if neither talents nor miners make sense to you, it was the parable of uh, a master giving his servants a bunch of money and saying, when I come back, I want to see a return. That's where we were last week. Um, and this week, we're going to fast forward past the triumphal entry. Um, as we read through Luke, that's what happens next after that parable, um, is that Jesus enters Jerusalem with a triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. We're going to go back to that on what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, and we're going to preach that. But um, where we're at today is we are looking at another parable that Jesus spoke after he entered Jerusalem. Remember two weeks ago, I said that Jesus' Jesus's focus had shifted, and he was saying, I must go to Jerusalem because I know what awaits me in Jerusalem. The disciples didn't really understand that. At his triumphal entry, we have all the common people, um, all the people that Jesus has gone out of his way to see and to engage, gone out of his way to bring dignity to, gone out of his way to heal the people that he's come to save, the the sick people that needed a doctor, the lost that needed to be found are all there and they're rejoicing as Jesus comes in. Uh, but the proud and the self-righteous, um, they're not that thrilled with Jesus' entry um, into Jerusalem. And here in Luke 20, we find Jesus not only in Jerusalem, but we find Jesus in the temple. And that's where we pick up in Luke 20, verse 8. I'm reading out of the ESV. It'll also be on the screen. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? As they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And now just remember, Jesus has cleansed the temple. For those of you that are aware of the narrative of Jesus in Jerusalem. He has just gone into the temple and he has exercised an authority that was justifiably the realm or the sphere of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. I want you to picture something in terms of, I mean, I love sport, I'm sorry if you don't, but this is kind of how my mind works. I want you to picture a game where there, let's say, soccer. Are there more soccer fans than football fans? Okay, soccer. Um, I want you to picture soccer, a soccer game, and all of a sudden, a spectator runs onto the pitch and starts handing out yellow cards to people and starts telling them that they can no longer play and they've got to go and sit down. And this is what Jesus did with the clearing of the temple. He went into a place where there's already a set-up authority, where there's already a referee, there's already umpires, and basically saying, no, 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 this is not how you play the game. There is something deeply wrong here, and he sets things in order. And the people that have this authority are looking around at each other saying, what is happening? This is the question that the chief priests and elders and scribes are asking. Now, is it only about the clearing of the temple that they're asking? It isn't just about that. 
consistent through Luke's narrative, there is the questioning of how Jesus could be doing these things. When Jesus forgives sins, they say to him, by what right or what authority do you have to forgive sins? When Jesus heals people and he has the audacity to do it on the Sabbath, they say, by what right are you healing people on the Sabbath? When Jesus said, it has been said, but I tell you, they say, but what right are you doing that? And so they're not just talking about the temple. They're talking about this idea of forgiving sins. They're talking about the declarations of the coming of the kingdom. They're also probably asking now, a couple days ago when you said to us scribes and Pharisees, woe to you because you do this and woe to you because who gives you the right to do this? The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders had a political authority and that political authority was sanctioned by Rome. And Jesus' authority was a spiritual authority that was given to him by the Father. In Luke 4, he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the captives, to break the chains of the oppressed, to see, to open blind eyes that deaf may hear. His authority comes from God. We see also scattered throughout Luke and the other Gospels where people say this of Jesus. He teaches us as one with authority, not as the scribes. Ooh, you know. This is not just his power that they're talking about. I mean, until this stage, we didn't have a man that was walking on the earth that was actually healing people, raising them from the dead, opening blind eyes. But this was his posture that multiplied his authority as well. It wasn't just the fact that he had this power. It was his power coupled with his humility that gave him such a deep authority. And people recognized that. Not the people that had this fake authority. In their failure to answer the question, or rather refuse to answer the question, they reveal that they actually have no real authority. What they're revealing is that they're not leaders, they're politicians. They're testing the temperature of the crowd so that they are waiting for an opportunity to be able to accomplish their own selfish purpose. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar in terms of the kinds of systems that we live in? They aren't leaders. They're saying, what is the crowd? Which way is the crowd leaning? And how can I not serve the crowd, but how can I use the way in which the crowd is leaning to be able to fulfill my political agenda? Now, what I love is Jesus answers the question with a question. He's not doing that because he's trying to get out of it. Like at a job interview, if you don't know the answer, ask another question, you know. Um, no, it's not a ploy or a trick but it's designed to expose their hearts, both to themselves and to the other people that Jesus is teaching. However, he does continue to indirectly answer this question by telling another parable. And in Luke 20, verse 9, this is what Jesus says. And he began to tell this parable, sorry, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants. And he went to another country for a long while. Now remember what Neil preached last week. There's a very similar theme, but a different outcome. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of that vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, the people that Jesus is teaching, when they heard this, they said, surely not, or heaven forbid, or there's no way, way, no way, way. But he looked directly at them. Man, I just imagine what it must be like for Jesus to look directly. I don't know who the them is. My guess is that he's looking directly at the scribes and elders and chief priests that ask the question, where do you get your authority from? He looks directly at them and he says, what then, sorry, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him or grind him to powder. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Jesus, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that there is a power that even in reading your word shapes our soul. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would help me to be faithful to your word in Jesus' name. This prophetic parable was actually fulfilled in about 40 years' time. Who is the vineyard? The vineyard is Israel. Um, who is the owner? The owner is God. Who are the tenants? The tenants are the leaders um, of Israel. Who are, the, who are the, the servants that have been sent before? The servants that have been sent before are the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah that Jesus quoted from. Prophets like Jeremiah, Haggai, etc., etc. Have all been sent to Israel by God, but they've been ignored. Some have been abused. Some have even been killed. Who is the son? Jesus is the beloved son sent by the father who is mistreated and killed. Now, we know that the religious leaders are the tenants that were given stewardship over Israel. And they have colluded with Rome to maintain their position, but that they will be removed. And we know that this happened because in AD 70, Jerusalem was overtaken and the temple was destroyed. And so not only is this fulfilled within those 70 years, but this is the big truth that we, where most of us are non-Israelites, that Jesus is saying not only will this vineyard be different, but it will be led by different people. Paul talks later on about the Gentiles being grafted into the vine, that we as people that don't have this historical connection with faith will be grafted into the vine. And so Jesus is saying, not only is the vine going to be different, but the people that are going to be caring for the vine are going to be different. And when we look at the church that is birthed out of Acts, the writer of Luke and Acts, same person, then we see that the leaders of the church are no longer majority Jewish people. Everything that Jesus said was fulfilled historically here. But now for us, what do we learn from this? How, how do we connect the story of agriculture and architecture? What is, what is the idea of like, okay, I'm going to talk about agriculture now. I'm going to talk about architecture. And how does that help us enter the kingdom? Well, I think when we look at the idea that Jesus brings up in his first parable of agriculture, there's a number of things that we need to understand as Christ followers. And the one is, 
Jesus has already come, and he has instituted a kingdom. He has already defeated death, disease, sin, and Satan. Yet he will return again to fulfill that victory in its full sense. And we've spoken before about the Allies landing on the beaches being D-Day, and yet that wasn't V-Day in the sense of Victory Day. And so we live in the kind of what is called the already not yet, where we know things have shifted, we know the victory is won, but it isn't won in totality. And so we long for Jesus to return. And what Jesus is talking about in the context of this parable, I would say, is the one area where we have to look at is we cannot long for Jesus' return if we aren't fruitful. Fruitfulness is what we are called to. In verse 10, it says, When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now remember the previous parable the, the owner gives them money and comes back expecting what? A return. Now, the owner here gives the tenants the right to work in the vineyard, and what is he expecting? Fruitfulness, right? Fruitfulness is not an unvalid expectation. You don't plant a vineyard to just stare at and look at it and see that it looks nice. You plant a vineyard so that it produces fruit. In fact, the same parable in Matthew saying that the owner planted the vineyard, set a hedge around the vineyard, dug a winepress in the vineyard, and built a tower to protect the vineyard. So the owner has done everything that is necessary for fruitfulness. And fruitfulness and growth, even like the song that we sang this morning, is an imperative if you are a Christ follower. The idea of you bearing fruit and growing in your relationship with Jesus and becoming more like him is an expectation that the Father has of us. Consistently, Jesus is talking about fruitfulness. Now, some of you will remember, as Jesus is walking on the way to Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. And he goes up to that fig tree expecting this is not hard. Figs, okay? And, and he doesn't find figs, and he curses that fig tree. And it is another picture of the fact that Israel has not been fruitful. What is the purpose of a fig tree? To produce? What is the purpose of a vine? To produce? What is our purpose? It is to be fruitful. It is to grow. It is to do those things that we sang about. And one of the things that we need to understand is that if we truly long for the Savior to return, if we truly long for the Master to return, we have to be those that are given to fruitfulness. The second thing is that we need to be those that are given to gratitude instead of greed. I can't really understand the mindset of these tenants. The potential of having more always spoils the joy of what we currently have, right? This idea that what I have kind of pales into what I could have. So for example, if I said to you, hey, hello Amanda, so good that you are with us. Um, if I said to you, Amanda, I'm gonna take you on a trip with me to London. I'm gonna pay for your ticket. You say to me, great, I'm there, cool. And then I grab my ticket and I say, here we go, we're going to the airport, there we go. There's your ticket, and off Amanda goes to economy, and off I go to first class. <laughs> what happens in Amanda's mind? Seriously, what happens? She's like, I can't believe that. I can't believe that he's in first class. And then I've got this. You know what doesn't cross her mind? 
I have a free ticket to England. That's what doesn't cross her mind. Sorry, I'm picking on you because this is really not like you, okay? <laughs> what happens is when the idea that I could have more begins to seep into my mind, I become much less grateful for the things that God has already given me. I become much less grateful. And I look for the opportunity to make it more. Now, this deal with attendance was not a surprise to them. This was an agreement that was standard in the Near East. This is how agriculture worked in those days. But the tenants saw him, and they said to themselves, this is the son, this is the heir, let us kill him so that we can have his inheritance. I just want to say, as a plan, that's not a good plan. I mean, no one is thinking about, you know, that'll probably work great if we kill his son, the father will just hand us the vineyard. You know, in the parable of the talents, Neil pointed out that they were motivated by fear, or, the, or the, the one servant was motivated by fear. Remember in the parable of the talents, the one that got ten multiplied that ten times, the one who got five multiplied it five times, and the one who got one hid it. Why? Because he was afraid. And, and so Neil was saying, don't be motivated by fear. Now, what are they motivated by? Greed. There's the sense of, but we could have more. If we kill him, we could have more. Instead of appreciating the privilege of what we have, we become more focused on the fact that we could get more. And then we morph in our own minds and our hearts from the idea of, I could have this, to the very, very dangerous place of, I should have this. Desire has shifted and it's become our right. I desire a husband. I desire children. This is not about bad things necessarily. This is about good things. But this desire becomes a right. And then gratitude fades and greed begins to grab hold of us. Thirdly, as Jesus teaches this parable, we can't long for Jesus' return if we aren't fruitful. We can't long for his return if we aren't grateful, we also can't long for his return if we believe that we are in charge and in control of our own lives. That if we believe that we are owners of what we have rather than stewards of what has been given to us. Now, your giving in the context of Ukraine is a great example of that. Because many of you went before God and said, thank you for the fact that I have the opportunity to give how much of your money, God, can I steward to this cause? Great example of what I'm talking about. But we've been conditioned to believe that what we have belongs to us, and it is our right to do with as we wish. Whether it's my body, whether it's my money, my family, my time. I worked hard for this. The reason why I have it is because I worked hard for this. And I think part of the problem is, my problem is that I don't know that I can trust God to be generous and kind. Now, I can trust God to be faithful and provide me what I need. But sometimes I really battle to trust God in the area of, like, my desires. And you know what? If I kill the idea that there's a master that's returning, I get to do what I want and take what I want for myself. There's a number of warning signs that I think are important 
When we look at our lives and we say, do I have an ownership mentality of what I have or do I have a stewardship mentality? And one of the warning signs is this idea of entitlement. I deserve this. I've done all the work. He hasn't even been here. No one even knows when he's coming back. We are the guys that are breaking our backs in the heat of the sun and producing this harvest. I'm doing the work. I deserve it. I'm entitled. The other thing that makes it hard and makes it, in a sense, easier for us to to seep into the idea of ownership over stewardship is time. And that is a reality. God, how long? How long am I going to be stuck in this job? How long am I going to be single? How long am I going to be waiting for this child? How long? How long? How long is not a phrase that biblical characters are unfamiliar with. If you do a concordance search on how long, it is littered from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Our how long is, Jesus, how long before you come back and set all things right? What is it going to take? And time is a difficulty. And the other one is our co-laborers. Man, (laughs) at least in the parable of the talents, there were two guys that were like, we know what our master is like. We are gonna, we're going to work hard. We're going to double his investment because we know what it's like. And there's one guy who looked at the character of God and said, I'm not sure that you're like this. And so because I'm choosing to focus on these negative characteristics of who you are, this is what I'm going to do. Here, all of them, all of them have this picture of God that is like, you're right. This is what we should do. And my question is, when when we're in a place of kind of shifting between ownership and stewardship, we need to be really careful who we're listening to and who's in our vineyard. Yeah, Nick, you should kill him and take this for yourself. Not actually, but you know what I mean. What are our co-laborers saying to us? And more importantly, church, what are you saying to someone that is in this situation? Yes, you are entitled to this. Yes, it has been too long. Now, we can sympathize, and we can empathize, and we can hear the pain, but we can also remind people of the nature and character of this master that is returning. I'm so sorry that it's been so long. I'm so sorry that you're lonely. But I know that you're not going to gain what you want by killing the master and taking what you want for yourself. Jesus then moves to architecture. I can only imagine the horror and distress of this shift when Jesus says, well, what should the master do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls or stumbles or is scandalized by the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him and grind him to powder. Just an interesting thing about this quote is it comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is what is called a messianic psalm. And Jesus quotes this. The interesting thing is that a couple days earlier, Psalm 118 is quoted again by the crowd. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus has heard this quote as he comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, and now he is quoting the same verse, a a different verse in the same psalm. What is a cornerstone? Well, we know that a cornerstone is used for stability and for orientation. It was large 
and it was clear. In ancient buildings, it was a reference stone against which you measured everything else with regards to that building. It needed to be as close to perfect as possible. And the choice of your cornerstone affected the integrity of the whole building. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in this, but basically it's the idea that if this point is wrong and we measure north and south and east and west from this, if this is not correct, then we're not going to be in the right place. And so a cornerstone wasn't just about the idea of um, solidity, which it was. The cornerstone was also about the idea of reference. Today, it's basically ceremonial. Did you know this building has a cornerstone? <laughs> yeah, here it is. Um, not that. Here it is. Any of you noticed that? That they may be one. It's a quote from John 17, put there in 1962. It does nothing. It's literally just a plaque. This is not what Jesus is talking about. <laughs> what is he talking about? Now, this is crucial because he's talking both to the leaders and to the people. And this is what he's saying. There is going to be a new temple. And Jesus said this. And he caused a lot of trouble for him. He says, you see this temple? I will destroy it in three days and I will build it up again. And they freaked out. Okay, But what is he saying? This is a temple not made by hands. This is me. I am that temple. And you are rejecting me by refusing to build your life on me. But I will be vindicated because I have the authority to execute judgment. I entered Jerusalem on a donkey. I will return on a white stallion. I, I was sacrificed as the Lamb of God. I will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And the thing that we need to understand is that love and judgment are not contradictory. Now, we don't have to go far to understand what Jesus is talking about, the cornerstone, because Peter, who's one of his disciples, who, funnily enough, Jesus said, you are the rock, and on you, the revelation that I am the Christ, I will build my church. Peter is the one who remembers this and says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Don't even have time to talk about the fact that you can't be an individual stone. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the world. Miroslav Volf, who writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, which is the idea of judgment and hell and a difficult book to read, said this, God will judge, not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. What is that? The unmerited grace and mercy of God. If evildoers experience God terror, God's terror, it will not be because they've done evil, but because they have resisted, to the end, the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. The effects of sin are so brutal that a death is required, but his love for us is so overwhelming that he takes this death upon himself willingly. But Nick, doesn't scripture say mercy triumphs over judgment? Yes, it does in this way. Mercy triumphs over judgment because in God's mercy and in the person of Jesus, he has taken the judgment away from us so that he 
can give us mercy so that we will not receive this judgment. Now, there is another judgment. Now, those of you that um, are familiar with Gladiator, one of my favorite movies, Maximus is on his horse, and he says, Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity, right? So why are you laughing? It's supposed to be this really bold moment. This is not where you laugh, you know. So. What we do echoes in eternity. Let me say this. What we do doesn't echo in eternity. What we do now is substantive, will be examined, and will be revealed in eternity. It isn't some kind of faint residue like an echo. It is the substance. Everything we're doing here is building something real in the context of eternity. As Christ followers, we have the privilege to be accepted into the favor of God because we've chosen to believe the good news of Jesus. And there is a judgment which is called the Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? There is a second judgment for those of us that are Christ followers. And that is a judgment of what we have done and how we have built on this cornerstone. Jesus is returning. And there will be a reward and a reckoning in terms of the way that we have built. Now, I don't know what that chart is. You know, you go in the airport and there's this exchange chart, and if you've got one dollar, it gives you all. I don't know how that works, but I do know this. Unlike the tenants, both of the previous parable and this one, I know the character of my God. I don't fear this judgment because the judgment has been taken for me by Jesus. And I don't live in fear, doing good things, hoping that one day I will be acceptable. I live with anticipation and hope, saying, God, I get to help build your kingdom. And in the end, the sacrifices that I'm making here are building for me something that cannot be taken away. Something that is actually, even as, as, as Sean reminded us this morning, something that is more substantive than what we believe that we're living in now. 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking, 1 Corinthians 3 Verses 11 says this, no one can lay any other foundation, are you getting the trend, besides the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So when someone builds on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or grass, sorry, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will be clearly shown. The day will make it clear because it will be revealed through the fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work survives, they'll get a reward. And if anyone's work goes up in flames, they will lose it. However, they themselves will be saved as if they'd gone through the fire. Faith in Jesus is not fire insurance. It's an invitation to build something that will last into eternity. That's what he's saying. The reality is, is that there is nothing you can do as a Christ follower or not do that will ever separate you from Jesus. There is no fire that will ever separate you from him, but we have the privilege of receiving a reward from our Father. My wife said to me one day, there's a picture in Revelation of the elders that have received their crown of righteousness. And it says that they take their crowns and they, they throw them down and they worship the Lamb. And she said to me one day, she says, I don't, I'm, I'm a little annoyed because I want a big crown but no, everyone in heaven is going to be perfect, so no one's going to be jealous of my big crown. So I'm not really sure how to, I'm not really sure like how to posture myself in this because isn't part of the idea of reward? It's like, look what I have. You don't have this. You know what I mean? And we were talking about this 
And a couple of days later, she said to me, no, you know what? I want a big crown because I want it to make the biggest noise when I throw it at the feet of Jesus and I get to worship him. That's what we're talking about, guys. Everything we do here is a response of worship to what Jesus has already done for us. Band, you can come up. Ultimately, we're asking the question, does my life bring attention to the cornerstone? Wood, hay, straw, those things are easy, man. Those things are light. They're everywhere. But gold, silver, and precious stones, those things are sacrificial and costly, but they're beautiful, and they're sturdy. Gold, silver, and precious stones are a life of responsive fruitfulness. Gold, silver, and precious stones are a life that is driven by gratitude. Gold, silver, and precious stones is a life that understands that because I've been purchased by the most precious commodity that this planet will ever see, the blood of Jesus, that I'm not my own. My whole life belongs to Him. So if you're a seeker this morning, Peter, again, says to the crowd that has just watched him heal someone and has watched the same Pharisees oppose Peter. And says, why are you doing this? And who's given you the authority to do this? And Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth has given me the authority to do this. And then he says this to them, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. This has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is a privilege of a declarative statement like that. There's, we, we don't need to wonder. Jesus himself said, I am the cornerstone. Peter said that Jesus is the cornerstone. Paul said that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone you are able to build your life on Him. As a Christ follower, I want to ask the questions, are you fearful of His return? Are you ambivalent? I don't care. Are you resentful? I've been working so long. You are absent. I don't even know if you know that I'm here. The Spirit of God to minister to you this morning. Do we long for His return? Are we preparing for His return? Am I fruitful? Am I grateful? Am I submissive? I end with Paul's admonishment to Timothy. The end of his life, Paul is in prison. He doesn't say, God, how long? He doesn't say, can you rescue me from this? This is what he says to Timothy. He says, at last, the champion's wreath or the crown that is awarded for righteousness is waiting for me. The Lord who is the righteous judge. I don't fear judgment because he's a righteous judge. The Lord who is the righteous judge is going to give it to me on that day. He's giving it not only to me, but also to all those who have set their hearts on waiting for his appearance. Jesus, I want to thank you thank you that you are a true, solid, beautiful cornerstone. And I want to thank you 
for the fact that you recognized this brutal disease of sin and rescued us from it by your death. I want to thank you that death, sin, Satan, shame, guilt, fear, all of those things were crushed by your death and resurrection. And I cannot wait to see you face to face. Because as much as I live in hope now, I know that when I see you face to face, everything will be perfect. So my God, I pray for these precious men and women. I want to pray that there would be an expectation of the champion's wreath for them. I want to pray that there would be an expectation of them knowing that as they build their lives on you, that they will receive a crown because they have longed for your appearance. We are uh, we're going to respond by going to the going to the table of communion. Um, there's a table in the back. There's two tables here to my my left, to your right. If you're a Christ follower, we want to invite you uh, to that table. Um, but uh, you know we are. Uh, we're a church that believes that God speaks predominantly and, and most thoroughly through his word, but he also nudges us from time to time and gives us things to share with the, with, with the church. That's a, he's active in, in our midst, and oftentimes he'll weave things together that aren't actually planned. And um, uh, Val, I want you to come and share that verse that God gave you this morning. was praying for the morning and Psalm 5 came to my mind so sorry so I just wanted to read um, a passage from it verse 3 says in the morning Lord you hear my voice in the morning I lay my request before you and wait expectantly for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness and it and it goes on and then in um, verse 7 it says but I by your great love can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy holy temple. Um, um, so I just, um, I loved just the idea of um, Jesus being our cornerstone and through his great love, he's invited us in. And it's not um, based on our own merit. Um, we, know, we know what we've done, but God knows us, and He's still invited us in. So, um, yeah, I was struck by that in the story that in in the middle of the parable that like this guy owns this vineyard and sends these people and they kill him, and his solution is to send his son. <laughs> right? Like, so I'm going to send my son. Like, he still came. Jesus knew this, and he still came to to us. Um, we get an opportunity to go to the table. The door is open to us. We can step into the, the, the work of Christ on our behalf. Um, we get to remind ourselves that it is his love that has opened the way to us. Um, so I, I'd like us to respond in one of two, one of two ways. Um, maybe there's something that, uh, maybe there's something that you're, you've been kind of holding on to. Uh, maybe there's a... Uh, uh, something that you've not wanted to let go of. And I, we think of this table as like a table of exchange, something that you uh, maybe have 
have, have clung to and aren't, uh, haven't been willing to let go of and, and trust God with. Um, but also, I want to invite Karen to share uh, something that she, uh, that, that she felt um, led, to, uh, led, led to share as well, and I'll give us direction. So, yeah, we've been praying yesterday morning, the ladies together this morning outside before the gathering, which you are all welcome to come to, by the way. But just this idea of shame and isolation and hiding, and it was the enemy's first lie to people, is be full of shame and hide and go out on your own. And one of God's great, great kindnesses to us is in terms of architecture and agriculture, we're rooted, we're grafted, we're built in. We're not easily pulled apart. And so the, one of God's great kindnesses to us right now to combat the lie of the enemy is to build us and root us and graft us. It's a good word. We, we can't be fruitful apart from him, and he gives us one another to be connected to. So we're going to take communion together. Uh, so I'm going to release you to grab the communion. We're going to come back and take communion, uh, take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.